It's really nice to see everyone uh, this morning, whether you've been with us, whether you're online, whether you're visiting or you're new this morning. I'm just so thankful and so glad that you've joined us uh, to worship our loving God this morning. As some of you may know, um, this being a pastoral intern is not my full-time job. Uh, I have a day job. It's being an officer in the Army. And so a lot of the experiences that I have that I draw upon in my life come from that. It's the only thing I've ever known in my adult life. Um, and one of those things that's unique to people in the military is the process of entering the military, and specifically the process of entering the U.S. Army. When anyone, <clears throat> sorry, when anyone makes the decision to enlist in the Army, the final thing that they do, that final step before officially entering the service, is that the recruit will seal their enlistment with an oath. The recruit takes an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States and to follow the orders given to them by their superiors. Likewise, ROTC and West Point cadets, once they complete their studies and commission into the military, they too will take an oath. They take the oath of the commissioned officer. Commissioned officers also swear to protect and to defend the Constitution of the United States. But as those who are entering the Army as leaders, the, those young cadets will also make an oath to faithfully carry out the duties and responsibilities of the leadership that has been placed on their shoulders. Both of these oaths share a common thread, whether you are a private entering the army at the very bottom, or whether you are commissioning into the army as an officer ready to lead. Both call the service member to swear an oath to something higher than themselves. And in this case, it's the Constitution of the United States. It's that oath and that loyalty that they swear to the Constitution that set the foundation for the loyalty, discipline, and manner of service of every member of the U.S. Army. Similarly, we as Christians in the Presbyterian Church, we make vows when we choose to become part of the church or when we are elected to positions of leadership. New members make vows acknowledging their need for a Savior to live a life as a follower of Christ and to submit to the leadership of the church. Church leaders like deacons, ruling elders, and teaching elders also make vows according to the office to which they have been ordained. In all, case, in all these cases, the foundation of our vows is not ourselves or our individual church, our presbytery, or even the Presbyterian Church in America. The foundation for our vows is our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus, who as the head of the church holds us together as one. And while we are one body, Scripture tells us that for the good and flourishing of God's people, we're not all the same. We have different giftings and callings. And as, what, and as we know from Jesse's message a couple weeks ago, there are those who are called to the office of overseer or elder. And on their shoulders rests the responsibility of leading and shepherding the church of God. Here in 1 Peter 5, the Apostle Peter calls those overseers to lead well. And he calls for younger Christians to be good followers and for all of us to clothe ourselves with humility. All of which he does only after appealing to the founder and perfecter of our faith. Only when we hold fast to Jesus and depend on him and his strength will we be able to lead well, to be good followers, and to have humble attitudes towards everyone. Before looking at the three distinct commands in this section, I want us to explore how Peter makes Jesus the foundation for all of it. We read in the first verse, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and as a witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Notice that although Peter, he is an apostle, he does not elevate himself or his own authority. 
He relates with the leaders across the church. He calls himself a fellow elder. Then he appeals to the one who the authority actually comes from. He appeals to Christ. What Peter is essentially doing is, Peter is saying, I am what I am only by the grace of God, and only by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and by the promise of his return in glory, am I able to write these things to you. My point is, simply put, isn't that all of us? Only by the grace of God we are adopted into his family. And only by the sacrifice of Christ are we able to be counted among the elect. Even more, we too are called to be witnesses of Jesus. Secondary witnesses in a sense that we were not there to see Christ's passion with our own eyes. But scripture very clearly calls us to be witnesses of him both in word and in deed in everything that we do. Secondly, like Peter, all Christians live by faith according to the promise of coming glory. And we also eagerly await Christ's return to fully reconcile all things back to himself. These affirmations belong to everyone, to the whole church, not just to Peter or the churches he was writing to in the first century. So having set that foundation, Peter focuses his attention on the responsibility given to the elders in the church. We continue reading. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being an example to the flock. And when the chief, when, <clears throat> sorry, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So Peter describes the manner in which elders should lead the flock by using three contrasting points. And the points are to willingly, not grudgingly, exercise oversight, to shepherd eagerly and not for shameful gain, and to lead by example and not by domineering over others. Each of these comparisons is individually important. But more importantly, what we have to understand is when we take these three points as a whole, it's contrasting worldly leadership with biblical Christ-like leadership. For example, while the world is full of leaders who oversee people in a cold, mean, grudging manner, who don't really care about those who they lead, elders are called to be, are called to be different. Elders will be leaders who willingly exercise oversight. They will be engaged, motivated, and caring leaders. And a quick note about being willing and engaged. Being willing and engaged does not mean that they will always handle every situation with joy. Because if we're honest, as messy human beings, there are a lot of situations that are, don't, are just not very joyous. A lot of leaders are put in positions they don't want to be in. But what being willing means is that these elders are willing to show up, and they're willing to take responsibility and own it for the glory of God and for the good of the church. A few weeks ago, Jesse noted that uh, the salary of the ruling elders at Las Tierras Community Church is a grand total of zero dollars and zero cents. And while it made some of us laugh then and some of you laugh now, I think most of us understand that, at least in our church culture, we don't expect uh, ruling elders to be monetarily compensated for their work. But the same was not so for the early church. Uh, most in the early church accepted to be con uh, monetarily compensated for their work. They had become accustomed to that. And unfortunately, as broken humans, we take advantage of things for our own good. So there arose a tradition in the early church of leaders taking advantage and abusing the system. And un unfortunately, what this led to was a group of elders and leaders 
who did work for the church, not for the glory of God and for the good of the church, but for their own monetary gain. And although I don't think that's an issue here at Las Tierras, all one would have to do is do a quick Google search and we would find endless results of church leaders who have exploited God's people for financial and personal gain. Also in the ancient world, one of the ways that people measured how important they were, one of the ways that people measured their own status was by the amount of slaves and servants that they owned. If you were an important figure in society, you owned an army of slaves who served your every need. When Christ entered the world, he flipped this system upside down. Jesus said of himself that he came not to be, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as ransom for many. And when his closest followers argued over who was the greatest among them, Christ challenged their very concept of greatness by saying that whoever wished to be greatest among them must be a servant to all. So too the elders of the church, who have been ordained to an office of great responsibility and great honor, must also be an example. They must be models of servant leadership. Now let's take a second to really think about what Peter has just said. Peter is calling elders to shepherd God's people in a Christ-glorifying manner, and not for any worldly gain, but for a heavenly reward to come. I think any sober-minded person would be overwhelmed and intimidated by that responsibility. So it becomes vital for elders to hold fast to Jesus and depend on Him for the strength and wisdom that is required to lead God's people in a Christ-like manner. And perhaps the Apostle Peter understood this principle better than any other apostle. After all, it was Peter who was so confident in himself that he said that he would never fail Christ. Yet, that same Peter, so confident in himself and his own abilities and in in his own strength, denied Christ three times before the crowd at his trial and then abandoned Jesus before the cross. And yet, after all of this, Our Lord, in His abundant grace and mercy, still calls Peter to lead His flock. But He calls Peter not to lead out of His own strength, or honesty, His lack of strength, but out of love for Christ. As a member of this church, who falls under the leadership of our elders, I can truly say that we are blessed to have elders who understand that only in Christ will they be able to lead in this way. I feel privileged that as the pastoral intern, I have been given a front row seat to grow and learn by watching them execute the duties and responsibilities of their office. So to our elders, if I may address you directly as one of the sheep in the flock, and if I may encourage you in the same manner that Christ encouraged Peter. Elders, because you love Christ, feed His lambs. Because you love Christ, tend to His sheep. And because you love Christ, feed his sheep. In verse 5, Peter transitioned from addressing the elders of the church to addressing those who are younger. We read, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Other translations read, You who are younger, submit yourself to the elders. The younger that Peter is speaking about in this text means more than just being younger in age. Really, in this context, The term younger broadly addresses all of those who fall under the leadership and care of elders of the church. What he is doing is he is addressing members of the church like you and I. In modern culture, I think we have a very interesting relationship with the word and idea of submission. Just flat out, we don't like it. 
We don't like being told to submit and obey to the will of others. It's just not what we like. Uh, We each live our individual truths, and as the modern urban philosopher Kanye West says, can't nobody tell me nothing. (laughs) Honestly, I think we struggle with the idea of submission a lot. How many times have we heard someone say, or have we ourselves said something like, there's no way another person is going to tell me how to live my life, how to spend my money, or how to run my home. We view submission as a form of weakness. But the truth is, I don't think the Bible views submission in this way. In fact, I think the Bible tells us that submission requires strength. And being completely honest, it requires strength that we don't have. So I have a question for you. When you think of an example of submission in the Bible, what or who do you think of? Because you know where my mind goes? My mind goes to Gethsemane. Christ is deep in prayer. He's experiencing deep agony to the point of sweating blood because he knows what awaits him at the cross. He gets done praying and in full submission to the will of the Father allows himself to be arrested. Listen to what I said. He allows himself to be arrested. Let's remember who this is. This is Jesus. The same Jesus that commands angel armies. The same Jesus who raised people from the dead. The same Jesus who demons fear and the ones who the wind and the rains obey. Don't you think that Jesus could have just snapped his finger and dropped them all dead in an instant? But that would have been the easy thing. The easy thing would have been to just end it all right there. There would have been no humiliation. There would have been no pain, no torture, and no death on the cross. But that's not what he does. Christ has the strength to submit to the will of the Father. And honestly, I think we all thank God that He did. So no, I don't believe that submission is weakness. I believe that submission is strength. It's the strength to get over ourselves and to get over our own pride. To admit to the Lord and to those that the Lord has placed over us that we are in need of encouragement and accountability. But a heart that is turned inward... And a mind that only focuses on the self will never do these things. That person will never have the strength to submit to somebody else's leadership. So where does that leave us? It leaves us in deep need of Christ. We need to be made new in a way that is only possible by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Because the old self, the self before Christ... Has too, much fr- has too much pride and is too full of him or herself to submit to a God and to the care of others. But the new self, who has experienced the love of Christ, is meek and humble. The new self draws near to the things and the people of God. So to those of us who have come to know Jesus, to those of us who God is drawing near to himself here at Las Tierras, Will you willingly submit to the care of the elders that Christ has placed over your life? Because the same Jesus who willingly gave his life for you and for me and brought us into his family also gave us his church. And for the growth and flourishing of his church, he gave her elders to oversee and care for it. So likewise, we submit to the care of our elders for the same reason that they care for the people of God. Our love for Christ serves as the foundation for our submission to the church and the elders he appointed to care over it. Lastly, in the second part of verse 5, the Apostle Peter says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. 
For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So if elders lead because of their love for Christ, and if we as church members submit to their leadership because of our love for Christ, then it only makes sense that all of us would clothe ourselves in humility towards one another out of our love for Christ. Professor of Biblical and Systematic Theology at Covenant Seminary, Dr. Daniel Doriani, says this regarding our call to clothe ourselves in humility. He says, By definition, a church is a gathering of the humble. Disciples are confident of their worth, since we know that God created us in His image and valued us enough to send His Son for us. Yet every believer is aware of his sin and need. Every disciple has repented. And when we repent, we both confess particular sins and admit that we are selfish and rebellious to the bone. Knowing that we are incapable of self-reform, we trust in Christ to forgive and restore us. This is the conviction of every Christian. So a proper understanding of our need for Christ leads to no other conclusion than a life that should be lived clothed in humility. Because we are forgiven sinners, and as forgiven sinners, we know more than anyone what it means to be given something that we have not earned. And that attitude transforms the way we interact with everyone. To, in- to begin with and include our relationship with our God, with other church members, with unbelievers, and even with complete strangers. But pride, the opposite of humility, instead of transforming our relationships with others, only hurts them. We can all think of times when our own pride led to a fight or an argument that strained, hurt, or even ended a relationship. Pride is so dangerous and is opposed by God in the scriptures over and over and over again. Because all pride does is turn us inward to look at ourselves and elevates us in our own minds above <clears throat> sorry, and elevates us in our own minds above other people. If we turn in our Bibles to the very beginnings of Genesis, we read about Cain and Abel and how destructive pride can really be. You may be familiar with the story. Brothers Cain and Abel, children of Adam and Eve, both brought gifts before the Lord. Abel, a sheep herder, brings the best of his flock as a gift for the Lord. Cain, a farmer, brought a gift from his fields. But it was not of the best of his it was not the best of his produce from those fields. So the Lord accepts Abel's gift and rejects Cain's. In his own pride, Cain gets offended, and instead of recognizing why his gift was not acceptable to the Lord, he becomes angry. And he becomes angry at his brother because his brother brought a gift that was acceptable to the Lord. So what does he do? He kills Abel. And as punishment, he is banished from his family and from the presence of the Lord. See, pride has the power to separate us from God when, we've, when we come to believe for some reason that we don't need Him. And it can separate us from others when we fail to acknowledge our own faults or fail to care of the needs of others. And that's why in our church context, it's so important for us to clothe ourselves in humility. Because a prideful elder does not submit to the Lord in their actions and does not lead according to how the Lord would have him lead. And a prideful member of the church will fail to submit to the elders the Lord has appointed over the flock because he or she will believe that they know better and maybe even believe that they could do a much better job at shepherding the church. And a prideful Christian 
will look at others like the Pharisees looked at the tax collector and say, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I, I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. But the humble elder will submit himself to the will of the Lord and lead willingly, eagerly, and be an example to his church. And a humble member of the church submits to the leadership of the elders that the, Lord, that the Lord has appointed over the church. And a humble believer, recognizing their own sin, does not compare themselves to other people, but seeks to always love their neighbor as themselves. And is what I just described easier said than done? Yes, of course it is. The presence of sin in this world makes all relationships hard, especially the relationships with those that you care about the most. And will there be disagreements between elders and their flock? Yes, absolutely. I think we at Las Tierras have experienced that. But that's because we're all imperfect people seeking to better understand a perfect God and His perfect gospel. But as Scripture assures us, the Lord has grace for the humble. And as we clothe ourselves in humility, by God's grace we will be a people who together first and foremost seek the Lord in all things. A people who are quick to acknowledge our failure and quick to ask and for forgiveness and extend forgiveness to those who ask. And we will be a people who are constantly seeking to build each other up in Christ. And I just want to close by saying this. As a member of Las Tierras for the last couple of years, I hope that this is the kind of church that you want as well. I hope that you want a church where your elders love and care and lead out of love for Christ. A church where the members submit to the will of, their, of the leaders appointed over them because of their love for Christ. And a community of believers who submit, or a community of believers who love each other and are clothed in humility when they interact, both with each other and with the outside world. I truly hope that that is the kind of community that you want, because it is definitely the kind of community that I believe the Lord wants for us. Let's pray to the Lord together.